Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The American Revolution, you know, we remember it as the glorious cause for liberty. And, and it, it is that. I mean, it wins us into the United States independence, and that's a big deal. But it was accomplished with a lot of conflict amongst the people on the Patriot side. That's University of Central Florida lecturer David Head talking about the prelude to the Newburgh conspiracy. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate, publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and The Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today we're joined by Professor David Head, a lecturer at the University of Central Florida. And he's going to be talking about an article that is a prelude in its own right to his new book, A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, the Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. Today, we're going to talk about uh, a part of the revolution, I think, that we are not totally comfortable with. One that we're not confident in talking about or studying. It's sort of a difficult transitional period at the end of the war uh, where you see a whole lot of Continental officers caught in a sort of limbo. And it's a limbo between a lot of different things, between uh, colonies and republics. It's a limbo between military life and, as Professor Head talks about, gentlemanly private life. Uh, and there's a lot of concerns here about the future. Uh, and what we're going to see on today's episode uh, is the initial ways that the Continental officers involved in what will become known as the Newburgh Conspiracy. What about addressing their grievances uh, that they believed were very legitimate? It is important when we talk about the 18th century that we understand that this is very much an era of rebellion. Uh, we're talking about the American Revolution. We're talking about the French Revolution. Uh, political revolution is never far away. But what's important about what we talk about today, the prelude to the Newburgh Conspiracy, is that these officers address these concerns in legal, uh, appropriate channels, right? Using the, the means available to them to operate within the confines of uh, a legal justice system. That's very important to understand. Professor Head's book is really the most detailed study of the Newburgh conspiracy in the last 50 years. You could argue maybe the most detailed ever. And that interpretation is central to his argument. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with David Head. David Head, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on today. Tell us about your background. So I uh, teach history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. Um, if, if people are not familiar with, with UCF, it's one of the largest universities in the country. Uh, I think we have 68,000 students or more uh, as of this fall. 
So my classes are usually big. I usually teach oh, 150 students or more, sometimes 200. Um, so, so the big lecture classes is what I do a lot. I'm originally from uh, Western New York, and uh, I grew up there, and that's where I received my, my BA degree in history. It was from the um, Niagara University. And then my PhD is from the University of Buffalo. And I'll tell you, I definitely prefer living in Florida in December compared to Western New York. Um, my wife and I have uh, three kids. We have um, uh, two girls who are uh, ages five and two and a half and a little boy who is six months old. And uh, I'm teaching them that daddy, uh, what he does for work is to talk and write about George Washington. What first drew your interest into this topic? Yes, well, writing about the American Revolution and, and George Washington is really, um, it's really a change for me. Uh, earlier in my career, I was really doing maritime history, and my first uh, several works were about uh, pirates and privateers. Uh, I have a previous book on privateers uh, in the early 19th century who sailed from the United States uh, as part of the Spanish-American Wars of Independence in the uh, 18-teens. And then I also edited a book of essays about pirates. So Pirates and Privateers was my, was my mainstay. Uh, but what, one of the things that convinced me to, to look into evolution, it really started one day when I was actually at the gym and I was listening to an audio book. Um, I know there are all different kinds of ways to, to think of new topics. Uh, but I was listening to a book about the Whiskey Rebellion. And that's, of course, uh, in the 1790s during Washington's first administration. And in a background section of that book, um, the author, uh, a, a writer named William Hoagland, he was talking about the Newburgh conspiracy. And he saw it definitely as a conspiracy uh, amongst people like Robert Morris, who was sort of like the Treasury Secretary in the 1780s, uh, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and others. And now I'd, I'd heard about the, New York, the Newburgh conspiracy previously, but not in any kind of in-depth level, but only in general. And I started thinking, you know, could that really be true? Was there a conspiracy amongst these, you know, founding fathers who we, we tend to, to, to see so positively? Um, what, did the conspiracy involve possibly a coup, either against Washington's leadership or about the civilian leadership in uh, Philadelphia in the Continental Congress? Those are all arguments that uh, were made in the book I was listening to. I mean, I was a little skeptical, but of course, I knew the, the founders, they were hard-knuckle uh, uh, politicians, so I wouldn't put anything past them necessarily. So I started thinking about this, and um, I went to the, the scholarship that uh, lay behind uh, Hoagland's work and um, you know, see what else was out there on Newburgh Conspiracy. And I found that, honestly, there wasn't a whole lot. Uh, there had been an exchange of articles in the William & Mary Quarterly in the early 1970s, in which uh, three authors, they had debated back and forth uh, various points related to whether there's a conspiracy or not, who was involved, who knew what, when, what the implications were. And after reading that, I just felt like it wasn't completely satisfactory. I had a lot of questions that remained, and I wasn't convinced that there was really good evidence of the conspiracy happening. So I thought, well, this is something maybe I could look into. Uh, kind of my, my interest was piqued. I sensed that maybe if I started digging, I could find something new. And, you know, really I saw this, what got me excited about it was that I saw it as kind of a, a founding father's mystery. 
Um, and I wanted to see if I could solve it, or at least uh, solve it as much as I could. So that's what got me interested in thinking about the, the, the Newberg conspiracy. And certainly one of the things that helped me decide to write about this topic was the availability of um, the evidence, the, just the wonderful uh, published sources we have now of the founders' writings. Uh, many of them are online and things you can ac- uh, access easily. You know, you don't have to, to leave your computer. You can stay home and uh, take care of your children like I have to. Uh, uh, you know, I can't uh, travel, really. So that all came together, the kind of intellectual curiosity, but also the practical side uh, got me to, to think, yes, this is the topic for me to, to undertake. What was the state of the war in 1782? Yeah, so the status of the war in the last two years is was interesting to me. Um, because we, the, the major victory at Yorktown is October of 1781. But the official news of the treaty ending the war doesn't arrive in North America until uh, November of 1783. So you have this two-year period where the war is still on, officially, but there's not a lot of fighting. There, is, there are still some, some uh, exchanges, but not a full-scale campaign or battle like Yorktown. Um, so the war's not over. But there's not fighting, but there's not peace either. But it's not really war, and it's not really peace. So one of the things I've wondered about is, well, how do you live during that period? What, is, what does it mean to be in the army when you don't really have anyone to fight, but you can't go home either? Um, so that's one of the things that intrigued me about, about the larger, larger um, story of that period. Um, you know, Yorktown really, but for 1782, Yorktown has really driven the British to the bargaining table in earnest. Now, there are lots of uh, kind of obstacles to the process, British domestic politics, the interests of France, uh, America's ally. So it's not a smooth process at all. Um, and there's also the, the, just the communication difficulty, the lag in time between when events happen in Europe and when Americans know about them, when co- the Continental Congress can you know, send advice back to Europe. It takes a lot of time. So just a kind of sense of limbo that everybody is living in. Washington, for one, is convinced that the war is going to go on. And he will not let anybody forget that the war is not over, even though a lot of people want to relax and they want to start to think about going home. Washington says we need to prepare for war. Uh, There's a good reason for this. And the reason is that the British still occupy major American positions, most importantly, New York City. Washington was obsessed with attacking New York City throughout the war, and that obsession remained on his mind in 1782. Most of the army is encamped in the Hudson, uh, Hudson Valley region, north of New York City, so keeping an eye on the British in case they decide to break out. The, the British are happy just to stay in, in New York and wind, wind down the clock, but Washington is thinking of ways that he could attack uh, New York and drive the British out. Uh, so he's still preparing for war. Uh, you know, he wants to attack New York City. The Americans in the fall of 1782, they're joined by the French army that marches up from Virginia, where they had been stationed since Yorktown. And Washington tries to convince them for some kind of concerted action against the British somewhere. But the, the British commander decides he's taking his army to the Caribbean, where he can, he can do more damage there, uh, do more good for the French cause uh, in the Caribbean than in North America. So 1782, the campaign season ends inconclusively. Uh, there's not really any shots fired in anger. 
Uh, no one's really killed in battle. Some men are killed by accident, which is which is very sad um, when they're supposed to be you know, not fighting, but the men still lose, lose their lives. Uh, one American general had a great line for the, the campaign of 1782. He called it an insipid campaign. There is just another year went by. They're still in the army and nothing has been resolved. So that's the situation in 1782, a kind of limbo with a lot of waiting and still not clear whether they're going to go fight or get to go home. In your opinion, what were the most urgent grievances that these Continental Army officers had during this time? So the officers have a number of grievances, and most of them center on money in some way. The officers had not been paid regularly during the war. Um, They were owed payment one time or another by the Continental Congress or by their states, and neither had been very good about actually delivering the money to the officers. Um, And when money did come, it was, the value was depreciated uh, by the tremendous inflation that happened during the war, both for the Continental Congress's currency and for state currencies. Uh, So the money they received wasn't really worth much. The officers, they wanted back pay, and they wanted their back pay corrected to take account for the inflation that had happened. The officers, they also wanted pensions. On two occasions during the war, the uh, Continental Congress had promised pensions to the officers. And once in 1778, uh, following a, a wave of retirements, resignations by officers, the Continental Congress promised pensions of half pay for seven years. And then two years later in, in 1780, following uh, Benedict Arnold's uh, changing sides, uh, the Continental Congress promised half pay for life. Again, the idea was to give the officers some incentive to stay in the service and to stay loyal to the United States. But as politicians will do, they uh, made promises that they did not get around to actually funding. Um, they kind of pushed that part out into the future. Well, by 1782, the war's winding down, the future has come. It's time to secure those pensions with some kind of source of funding, and Congress has never done it. So the officers, they want to see that there's some source of of revenue that will be dedicated to paying them pensions. Uh, They're willing to compromise. Uh, They're willing to give up their half pay for life and take full pay for a shorter number of years, or they offer that they could take just a lump sum Right, one single cash payment to discharge all the obligations. So they're willing to compromise on that. They want something for for a pension, uh, to kind of as a compensation for for really for giving up their careers for for eight years in some cases. Uh, the officers' concerns about money. Uh, it's more than about the money of not not getting paid. Uh, the officers see themselves as gentlemen. Now, gentlemen are not really supposed to be motivated by money. Uh, but they are, but they do need money to be gentlemen. Um, what I mean by that is that gentleman status was kind of amorphous. It was hard to define. You couldn't quite, you know, run down a checklist of here are the qualities that make you a gentleman. It was part about wealth, but there were rich men who were not gentlemen, uh, men who worked with their hands, uh, merchants. Those are not really gentlemen. Um, there are also, you know, family pedigree health, but it wasn't necessarily what made you a gentleman. Uh, still, colonial and, you know, early U.S. people, 18th century people, they knew a gentleman when they saw one. And part of what told them what a gentleman was, was the way he presented himself. 
you know, he wore the right kind of clothes. He ate the right kind of foods with the right kind of table setting. He traveled the, the, the right way. Okay, so all those kind of material trappings all denoted gentleman status. Okay. If an officer who thinks of himself as a gentleman doesn't have the money to go home in gentlemanly style, he's going to be humiliated. Uh, more than humiliated, he'll probably lose his sense of honor. Other people will mock him, and he won't be able to, to call himself a gentleman anytime in the future. So about money as money, but also the officers are really concerned about their status and being gentlemen and having a sense of honor. And all those things, those intangible things, are extremely important, and they all kind of rely on a foundation of having money. Now, one thing they also complain about, um, which does not make it into the, the final draft of their, um, of their grievances, of their memorial, I found this, I found this part especially, um, especially interesting. It was really funny the way they complained about it. Uh, over and over again, the officers complained about having to build huts during the winter. Uh, that's what the army did for um, for lodging in their winter quarters in Newburgh, is they would build these log huts, like little log cabins. And they didn't get started on this until November of 1782. And, you know, I grew up in, you know, upstate New York, and I know what November conditions are like. And it's not fun to rake leaves in November. Uh, if you wait till December, it's not fun to uh, to shovel the snow. And I can't imagine undertaking a construction project during that, during that period, um, you know, I, I would get to go home and, you know, go inside the house and warm up. They uh, have to build their own house and they can't really be warm because they don't have the right kind of clothes that are all worn out. So they complained about that a lot uh, as the kind of the non, one non-monetary thing they complained about is being forced to do these construction projects uh, in the height of winter. Uh, so all those things come together into their grievances that they draw up and submit to, uh, to a committee to, to put together into a memorial. How did they address their concerns? What channels were available for them to do so? So the, the officers, um, they formed a committee. Uh, they, they, they banded together and they, um, you know, they, they gathered their grievances together and kind of formal structure from the individual, uh, individual regiments. And they kind of put those together into a memorial that they could send to Congress. Um, you know, it's very kind of, it's very structured to it. Um, you know, very chain of command, which makes sense because they're, they're in the army. Uh, the Massachusetts, the Massachusetts line really led the way in organizing the other lines. Uh, the Massachusetts line, uh, in summer of 1782, they received permission from General Washington to meet together and to draft some kind of letter or, uh, remonstrance to their uh, state legislature. Uh, asking for their pensions and, and back pay. And Washington allowed that to go forward. Uh, the Massachusetts line was not successful in obtaining any kind of relief from their state. So they regrouped and they brought in the other state lines. And they all gathered together. Uh, they met at a place called Horton's Tavern in New Windsor. And there they hammered out the statement of what they wanted from the Continental Congress. They kind of put together a lot of the grievances uh, they left out the part about the huts. Uh, I guess that was probably a good idea because it's not like the Continental Congress could do anything about their accommodations. But on the, the money things that the Continental Congress could do something about, the officers drafted this petition. They uh, elected uh, Henry Knox as their, as their leader. Knox was the, 
uh, general in charge of West Point at this time during the during the war, and he oversaw the uh, the writing of the memorial. So that's what the officers do. They they work very much within sort of the the chain of command within the political system to make their grievances known to the Continental Congress. What response did they get after making these petitions, uh, and and what did these petitions look like? Well, when the Massachusetts uh, line sends their their grievances to to Boston to their state legislature, they send a a, a few men to represent them, and they really don't get a very positive response. Massachusetts, like most of the New England states, was strongly anti-pension. Uh, in this period, pensions are seen as you know very su- suspicious. Uh, uh, pensions are what a tyrant offers to kind of seduce men into giving up their liberty and to making themselves subservient to the government. The idea being that if you receive your your living, your your livelihood from government payments, then the government owns you, and the governor or the the parliament or whoever secured the pension can tell you what to do. Okay, so, so, so pensions are seen as, as immoral and as um, you know, really a threat to liberty. So they are deeply unpopular in New England. However, Massachusetts has a very large number of officers uh, and officer families. So the state legislature, they can't just brush this off and tell the officers no, but they can't anger some of the sort of Republican purists and say yes. So they're kind of stuck between. The legislature kind of delays and stalls and puts off the the memorial in various committee meetings and procedural votes and all that kind of thing until the legislature figures out a way to kind of table the the officer's petition, kind of to say no without actually voting on it, just kind of let it die a natural death. Um, One of Massachusetts delegates to the Continental Congress wrote wrote a letter back to the state legislature saying that, you know, the talk here in Congress is that if any state offers pensions to its own officers, its own soldiers, um, the Continental Congress is not going to give us any credit for that. The way the the funding of the central government worked in this period is that each of the states was given a quota, an amount of money that they had to come up with and help pay their share of what the Continental Congress spent on the war. So each state was given a number. Now, Massachusetts wanted, they, they wanted that if they did pay their own soldiers' pensions, that their yearly quota contribution would then be reduced, that they would get a credit towards what they owed the central government, because they were essentially taking over the uh, Congress's pensions to their officers. Well, it looked like Congress wasn't going to go for that, and that any pensions that Massachusetts might offer paying for the rest without getting any credit. Uh, so, you know, they wouldn't, their their tax burden would remain the same. So that wasn't going to fly in the Massachusetts legislature. And the Massachusetts uh, legislature, they then sort of tabled the officer's petition until 1783, kind of putting it off. And then it was, it was pretty clear to the officers that they're just going to be stalled until time ran out on them. Um, the memorial that's eventually sent to the uh, Philadelphia, to the Continental Congress, that gets more consideration. It is greeted as something that's just and the officers deserve. Congress has made a promise. The problem is, as the uh, the financier, the sort of secretary of the treasury, a man named Robert Morris, he reports, we don't really have the money now. 
and the way things are going, we're not going to have the money anytime in the future. So that's kind of everything. Uh, no money now, no money in the future. Uh, they're kind of stuck. So that's the, the, at least the initial reaction that this, this effort gets in Massachusetts on the, beha- on the part of the Massachusetts line, then also in the Continental Congress, the petition that comes from, from the various lines of different states in the Newburgh area. What do you feel were maybe the most unique or important elements of this final draft of what we talk about as a memorial? Yeah, so a memorial was a, was a kind of petition. Um, I think there's technically in the 18th century a difference between the two, although the difference eludes me at, at the moment. Uh, for our purposes, they're, they're, they're the same thing. So, a, a, you know, a letter to a governmental body asking them to do something. Um, so that's a memorial. And the memorial that's, that is uh, written by the officers, it goes through a couple of drafts. And it's really interesting. I, I found the drafts um, in the papers of Henry Knox. And they, they appear to be in the handwriting of Samuel Shaw, who was uh, Knox's aide-de-camp. And he went on later to have a, um, a, a diplomatic career uh, after the war. So, so it looks like Knox's aide kind of copied this out. And anyway, the, the first draft was very, very kind of Massachusetts-centered. Uh, it offered kind of a, a contractual language about why the officers should be paid. You know, they had fulfilled their part of the contract and the, uh, the people needed to fulfill their end of the bargain and things like that. That's a very New England way of, of arguing and understanding the world. That whole part got deleted for the second draft. Uh, and I think it makes sense because the whole army, you know, there are people in there not from New England. The Continental Congress is not just New England. So really needed to speak in a language, in a rhetoric that went beyond just that New England way of understanding military service. Um, the one interesting thing is the changes between the drafts. I, I really like comparing the two. It's, it's kind of fun to see how it changed and what elements don't change and how things move around. Uh, when you're, you're writing a book or an article, of course, you make lots of edits, and it's, it's fun to see that, oh, yeah, they did that you know, for important documents 200 years ago, too. Um, one of the important differences is that the final version really has an emotional appeal to it. Uh, it's not a kind of cold language of contract. And part of this emotional appeal is to really make it clear to the Congress how much the officers have suffered and how dangerous it is to keep putting off a decision. That's what the officers are concerned about, is that, they're just, that the civilians are just going to keep going and going and running out the time until the war's over, then nothing will happen. There's a couple of really key passages that go into that second final memorial. Um, there are some lines where the memorial talks about what it calls um, the uneasiness of the soldiers. And the document warns that any further experiments on their patients may have fatal effects. Now the language here, it's kind of, it's a little, it's very subtle. Um, the language says soldiers, not officers. So they really meant the enlisted men, not the officers. But of course, if the soldiers right, start to get angry and start to rise up and start to be dangerous, well, then all that stands between them and the collapse of the army is the officers. But again, if the officers are, are going to resign because they aren't making any money and need to go home for their families, there won't be any officers to hold back the soldiers. So that's not stated outright, but that's kind of the implications of what the lines are saying. 
is, is, the, is the soldiers who are identified as dangerous, but they really need the officers to be happy to keep them in their keep them in line. Uh, so, so very subtle there, but I don't think it would have been mistaken by any of the congressmen who heard the memorial. So that, that's similarly of the, the interesting things about the memorial. It recounts the grievances that I talked about previously, but kind of its rhetorical strategy is, is fairly subtle and it, it, it's very clever to, to be respectful, right? Not too strong, but also clearly communicate the stakes of the situation. You say this will be a prelude to the Newburgh conspiracy. Could you briefly talk about what the Newburgh conspiracy was and how it played out? Yeah, so the so Newburgh conspiracy is is the name that's usually given to a crisis that breaks out um, amongst the officers uh, near near Newburgh, New York, where the bulk of the army is encamped in March of 1783. And during uh, one week in, in March of that year, a uh, anonymous letter circulated through camp. We find out later that it was written by Major uh, John Armstrong Jr. He was an aide to Horatio Gates who was the second uh, ranking officer in, in the camp at that time, second to Washington. Um, the letter, it calls the officers to meet, and it really says that the memorial has failed, and they need to meet and discuss what they're going to do next. Now, the letter is a bit uneven. Uh, in one place, Armstrong writes that what they need is a, a strong, more strongly worded letter, the one that is ultimately respectful. That's, that's pretty unobjective to, you know, again, refocus Congress on their problems. Later in the anonymous letter, though, uh, Armstrong, he gives a really kind of notorious um, uh, consideration of what the officers' alternatives are, is what he says. He says, the Army has this alternative. He tells the officers, you know, if uh, the war should continue, we don't have to fight. We can leave ungrateful civilians to themselves and let them fend with the British. We don't have to fight on their behalf if they're not going to take care of us. Or Armstrong writes, if peace should be declared, we don't have to go home. We can stay in the field and win what's ours by the force of arms. Either of those alternatives that Armstrong mentions are highly inflammatory and really would have changed what the revolution was about by kind of threatening either, you know, really by threatening the civilians to either not protect them or to refuse to lay down their arms. Now, the conspiracy part of this comes in from the belief that the officer put up to this, that they didn't come up with this on their own. Um, the theory or the belief is that it was really uh, figures in Philadelphia who were pulling the strings behind the scenes and instigating the officers Men like um, Alexander Hamilton, Robert Morris, Governor Morris, those men wanted a stronger central government. And the theory is that they uh, really pushed the army to try and, and kind of stand up to civilian leadership, to scare members of the Continental Congress, members of the state legislatures, to approve new taxes that would fund the pensions and then ultimately strengthen the central government. So that's where the, the conspiracy angle comes to this, that there's some coordination between the officers writing this letter, the threatening language of the letter, and the political goals of uh, these more sort of nationally-minded figures in Philadelphia. Um, if, if you read the, 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 the full book I've written, um, you'll see I'm a bit dubious about the idea of a full-on conspiracy. 
I mean, part of part of the reason I'm, I'm dubious is the officer's memorial process that happens in late 1782. Um, the officers really working inside the system. They're angry. They're they're really frustrated with their civilian leadership. They, they are not happy, but they are very much working within the chain of command. They have Washington's approval. They have this kind of committee system. Um, you know, they have these series of meetings. They have approval for their language. They send a delegation right, officially on their behalf to Philadelphia. And all the, the ways of protesting within, within the system, that's what they're doing. So I think this late 1782 episode uh, really shows the officers a willingness to wait on Congress. Um, it does not show that they were ready to rebel, that this was the last straw or anything like that. One more little push and they were going to, you know, try and overthrow the government or anything like that. They were unhappy, but they were willing to, to let the process uh, unfold. I think a small group of officers, such as Armstrong and some of his, his friends, to get it into their heads that they need to go on their own and push beyond the other officers, go beyond Washington's leadership, and issue a statement to, to Congress on their own. How does this event help us understand the American Revolution more clearly? Yeah, so this is a, you know, a relatively small episode at the, the end of the American Revolution, but I think it's really revealing about the way the American Revolution ended. Uh, and we really don't have a lot of, there's really not a lot of works on the way the revolution ended. I know that when, when I, before I did this, this work, uh, the way I would usually teach the last part of the American Revolution is that I would do the Battle of Yorktown and then the, the Treaty of Paris, and then I'd skip ahead to the problems with the Articles of Confederation and the rise of the Constitution. So I really just kind of skipped from 1781 up until 1787 and skipped that six years in between. Of course, when you're doing a history survey, skipping six years is like, you know, you know that, that's, that's, that's no big deal. I mean, when I teach Western Civ, I, I skip a thousand years at a time. But what this really t- shows us, this episode here, and taking a close look at the way the revolution ended, really gives us a sense of how conflicted people were about the revolution, how much anxiety there is about the future as the war ends, how much conflict there is among Americans and the kind of the suspicions that go back and forth suspicions between people from different states, and most particularly in my, um, my examples here, the suspicions between the army and civilians. Um, early on, I was really shocked at how angry civilians were towards the, the, the soldiers, the, the soon-to-be veterans. Uh, you know, living in America in 2019, soon-to-be 2020, you know, veterans are really honored, um, as they should be. And to speak ill of a veteran, you know, that's a huge social, social faux pas. I mean, a politician does that, your career would be ended. And at the end of the American Revolution, by contrast, to speak well of an officer it marks you as suspicious, as someone who maybe isn't fully Republican in the 18th century sense. So really recapturing that world, I think, is really important for people to understand. The American Revolution, you know, we remember it as the glorious cause for liberty. And, and it, it is that. I mean, it wins us into the United States independence, and that's a big deal. But it was accomplished with a lot of conflict amongst the people on the Patriot side. And the end came, you know, with the soldiers being very disillusioned with what they experienced. So that kind of, um, I wouldn't say it's an unhappy end, but it's a very conflicted and ambivalent end for many of the men who served and sacrificed throughout the whole war. 
So I think that's really what the larger story is, is how this war came to an end and what it was like to live through the end of the war and how the civilians and the soldiers really were deeply suspicious of each other. And so it was a big deal to have to overcome those suspicions after the war ended. David Head, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.